1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Uh, our gospel lesson this morning is the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, the first 13 verses. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this manager was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors to him one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down, quickly make it fifty. And then he asked another, How much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Turn your hearts with me in prayer. Give us ears to hear beyond just the simple words of a parable but to hear the word of your spirit working through the power of this simple story so that it may resonate in our lives until we are changed to the glory of Christ. Amen. In ecumenical gatherings, those times when a whole bunch of people are all worshiping in the same space, there's, there's a little problem that occurs every time we say the Lord's Prayer. You know what I'm talking about? 
And the first part is very simple, our Father who art in heaven. Although some people grew up with our Father which art in heaven. Is it a witch or who? But anyway, by the time you get to that point, you've just started, so nobody pays attention to the who's and the witches. Um, then you get through the next portions, and you come to the hallowed be thy name, although in some modern translations it says, your name is holy, which really confuses everybody. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Not a bad translation, but someone wanders into church for the first time in years, and they get to the Lord's Prayer, and they say, I've got this, I got this, I know. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Shoot, I don't even know the Lord's Prayer anymore, they say. They've changed everything. But that's not the real awkward part, right? The really awkward part in a unison yet recitation of the Lord's Prayer is the whole debts, trespasses, sins thing. What do you do? I know what I do. Most people do this. When you get to that point, you kind of pause. You hold back, right? Okay, is this a debts room or a sins room or a trespasses room? You know? Oh, okay, they said trespass. Okay, so now I know the trespass against us. Yeah, you get the answer to the first question. You know how to answer the second question when you hit the sins, debts, trespassers thing. For a brief time, the good news translation of the New Testament tried to introduce, forgive us the wrongs we have done as we forgive the wrongs that others have done to us. Boy, that's really cumbersome. You know, it's even faster to say trespasses and those who trespass, the wrongs that have been done to it. Even better, I love the Weymouth translation. The Weymouth uh, translation was done by, by a British guy in the, in the 19th century who wanted to translate the Bible into a language of familiar English, but it was 19th century British English. And so this is what he came up with. Forgive us our shortcomings as we also have forgiven those who have failed in their duty to us. Wow. I'm glad that didn't catch on. And duty to us. It sounds really entitled. (laughs) You have failed to your duty to me. Of course, the problem here is not the Greek or the underlying Aramaic text. Chances are that when Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples, he taught them in Aramaic, which was the conversational language of his community. And when it was written down, it was in Greek, which was the scholarly language of the community. There's no problem with the Greek or the Aramaic words. The problem is what is lost in translation. The underlying word carries the sense and nuance of all of these English translations. It carries the sense of debt and sins and trespasses and wrongdoing and shortcomings. It's one word that has all of those elements and can be translated in any one of those directions. Personally, at ecumenical gatherings, I love the cacophony. I like how the sin against us people and the debtors and the trespassers are all competing in the room to remind us of different transitions and different traditions. I like the noise that flows out of that, and I love how everyone who does sins and debtors politely wait for the trespassers to catch up with them. Um, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And in the room there's this echo, those who have trespassed against us. 
My purpose this morning is not to convey this sense of indebtedness. It is to talk about this parable of the incompetent manager. He is wasting his boss's property. So bad were his management skills that his manager has served him notice. You're fired. Nowadays, that would come along with somebody from security who would give you that little Xerox paper box and you could put your pens and, and your mug and, and the pictures of your family into it and that little uh, Eiffel Tower that uh, Elise gave you when she came back from her trip to Paris and in accounts payable. You'd put that all in your box and you'd do the walk of shame out to the parking lot and they'd make sure uh, that you would get in your car and drive away and security would stand there until you were completely out of the lot. Um, then they'd run upstairs and, and deactivate your scan card so you'd never be able to get back into again. It happens so that when someone is being fired, they cannot do what the manager did in the parable. That's log on and do something very bitter to the accounts receivable, like changing the deposit account to your own personal account from the corporate account, which is kind of what this manager does with the records here in the parable. He discounted the debts to his master on all of the accounts that he supervised. And those in arrears suddenly had much smaller bills. So that when he was fired, he'd say, hey, remember that uh, 50 jugs of oil that I saved you, you know? Remember those measures of wheat? You know, yeah, you got to help out a guy who helped out you, right? The great thing about the parable is how both the boss and Jesus says, that's kind of cool. See, up until this point, the boss just thought the manager was an idiot. And then when he found out that the manager could manipulate the accounts receivable to his own benefit, he thinks, yeah, that's actually pretty shrewd. Let's talk again about what you can really do for the business now that I find out you got a brain. The manager is complimented for how he handles the debts of the debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I know around here we say sins. Forgive us our sins as we who forgive those who sin against us. And it works. And it is a fair and honest translation of the Lord's Prayer. But it's easy to think about forgiving those who have sinned against us. Have you forgiven someone who sinned against you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have. I I overheard someone saying something about me behind my back and, and I just forgave them. Or someone who challenged me on something and we had in our... And you know what? I just, I just forgave them. When it comes to sins, uh, we're like Elsa. We just let it go. You know? <laughs> When's the last time you called a debt? And I don't mean the debt that your kids owe you because you'd have to loan them the money to pay you back anyway, Right? I'm talking about really canceling someone's debt to us. Well, that's very different, right? I can forgive your sins, but you still owe me a hundred bucks, right? You borrowed that money. How do we move through with forgiving debts? Jesus said, if you can't handle earthly generosity, 
how are you going to be entrusted with eternal values? Because in the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon, we proclaim that God has renegotiated all of the terms of our contract. What once read as a ledger that said the wages of sin now reads paid in full. Wow. Jesus says to use the unrighteous mammon in order to make a difference in eternal relationships. Forgive us our debts. Say it with me. As we forgive. Yeah. Let's keep in mind that the parable falls right on the heels of the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son story. The one son says, give me my inheritance in advance. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want it now because I'm young and can make good use of it. So the father gives him the inheritance and off he goes and spends it recklessly and comes back after he has spent everything. He's at his ends and the father sees him afar off and runs and he's ready to say, just make me a hired man because I have no right to the estate. But the father restores him, gives him a robe, puts a ring on his finger, get some prime rib. It's a festival, it's a party. And what does the older brother do? The older brother doesn't even consider the return of his own flesh and blood. He considers the indebtedness to the estate. He's already squandered your property. And I want what's coming to me. And what you spend on him now for this party, let alone for anything in the future, is coming out of my share. What does the Father say to him? The Father says to him, your head is locked into whether or not you can forgive your own brother's debt. He's your brother. Can you not just receive him in joy? We move then to our epistle readings. Uh Uh-oh, I hear you say. He's talking about debt. And the epistle reading is about politics. Oh, please, pastor, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. The pastor is going to make some veiled dig about which party is more likely to forgive debts, who looks more Christianly in their response to fiscal spending. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't let him. Yes, I'm going to go there. I'm going to talk about politics. In 1 Timothy... Chapter 2, after Paul has given his introduction and says, say hi to all the saints, and I'm with other saints, and it's good to talk to you again, and I pray for you all the time. He moves into his argument here in the second chapter by saying, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. By the way, Paul says that includes those in power, for presidents and cabinet members and governors and legislators and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we can live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. 
It reminds me of that scene in The Fiddler on the Roof where they come to the, to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, is there a blessing for the czar? And the rabbi thinks for a moment and says, May the Lord, the Holy One, blessed be he. Bless and keep the czar far away from us. You want to live a quiet and peaceful life? Paul says the next time someone tries to get you into a political argument, try this. After they've spewed whatever side of the political spectrum they happen to be on, look them in the eye and say, I don't know what the politicians are thinking, but let's join hands and pray for them together right now. Yeah, you know what? They're not going to want to talk about politics with you ever again. <laughs> Remember that Weymouth translation? Not trespasses, not sins, not debts, but as we also have forgiven those who have failed in their duty toward us. Does that include politicians? Does that include those who we don't think should be in the office, but they are in office? That we have failed to do our duty and we pray to forgive those who have failed in their duty to us? When's the last time that in your heart or in public you demonstrated your forgiveness to those in power? I don't mean acquiescence. Well, they're in charge, so what are we going to do? I mean an internal sense of forgiveness for their failure to do their duty toward us. Paul says praying for them is a way to lead to a quiet and peaceable life. And then he explains why. He says, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. And this was attested at the right time. Remember when it comes to politicians, Paul says, Jesus died for them too. Ouch. And I fear as much as we are tempted to cling to the debts others may owe us, I fear that these days we're even less forgiving when it comes to our political grievances. So much so that people are donating hundreds of millions of their own hard-earned or ill-gotten gains in order to have campaigns against those that we don't like. And right now, when I talk to my colleagues in ministry, more churches are dividing over politics than any other single issue. More people are taking their toys and going home because they don't see eye to eye with the leadership or the pastor or the other people in the pews about politics. We don't have quiet and peaceable lives because we're unwilling to be forgiving and we're unwilling to pray. And in our righteous indignation, we stand like that angry older brother of the prodigal and say, you owe me. Jesus rightfully asks this question. If you have not been faithful, 
if you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth in the world around us, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? Forgive us our debts as we forgive. Amen. Amen.